Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we'll be discussing maritime security and the blue economy. Maritime security stands at the linchpin of stability, trade and development in the African maritime domain, whilst the blue economy offers an ocean of untapped potential, presenting African nations with the means to diversify their economies, create sustainable jobs and alleviate poverty. On this episode, I am very lucky to be joined by Ambassador Nancy Karagathu, Special Envoy and Advisor to the President of Kenya and the Kenyan candidate for the IMO Secretary General. Across the episode, we discuss a number of key issues that she is currently engaged in, including maritime security's ability to address transnational threats, how maritime infrastructure can be developed to improve trade and economic activities. We also discuss public and private partnerships and their place in contributing to the achievement of maritime security and blue economy goals. It was an incredibly diverse conversation and we do hope you enjoy listening. Ambassador Nancy Karigithu is currently the Special Envoy and Advisor to the President of Kenya and the Kenyan candidate for the IMO Secretary-General. Ambassador Nancy Karigithu holds a Bachelor degree from the University of Nairobi and a Master's degree from the International Maritime Institute in Malta. She was a Director General of Kenya's Maritime Authority where she served for nine years and then served as the Principal Secretary in the State Department for Shipping and Maritime. She was also involved in the setting up and launch of the Association of Women in the Maritime Sector in Eastern and Southern Africa, WUMESA, and was awarded with an honorary fellowship from the World Maritime University in recognition of her distinguished service to the international maritime industry. Thank you so much, Ambassador Karagisi, for joining us here on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Yusuf. I'm privileged to be here. Thank you. Now, to begin immediately, you're a very busy person, so I don't want to take your time. How can countries collaborate to enhance maritime security in the face of transnational threats? Let me first start by putting it in context, because the maritime domain is the cornerstone of the livelihood of humanity, habitat, resources, and accounts for transport routes for up to 90% of global trade. It happens on the waters. The oceans and seas connect us, makes distant nations neighbors and is responsible also for weather patterns, for feeding billions of people and humankind depends on a safe, sound and secure maritime domain in order to preserve peace, enhance international security and stability and also generate economic growth and prosperity, secure the energy supply and preserves ecological diversity and coastal livelihoods. In short, stability and development are closely linked to the maritime sector. Now, like I said, the maritime sector shipping accounts for 90% of global trade. So it means that the navigation of commercial vessels from port A to port B requires the ability for those vessels to pass freely and safely through some of the most dangerous and vulnerable sea lanes in the world. Now, in such an environment without borders, it means that we all must depend on one another. It means that we must work in collaboration in order to secure that vast space. And from experience, there are some strategies that have come to play in a very positive way. 
Now, one of them is to collaborate at regional and international levels. But you do not collaborate unless and until you have your own house in order. So it begins with the country itself, then you reach out to your neighbors and in the international front. For example, when we had the challenge of piracy in waters of the coast of Somalia, without joint collaboration, we would never have managed to get our safety back. So countries must work together, either in joint operations, such as maritime patrols and operations, particularly in high-risk areas, in order to enhance security and monitor with a view to responding to any emerging threats, such as smuggling, illegal fishing, piracy, human trafficking, and many other offenses that happen in the water. Now, you undertake joint operations from a point of knowledge. So joint capacity building is a prerequisite because then we need to train together to have the same viewpoints to get also understanding of technology that we can use and also equipment that helps to support enhancement of the capabilities of each and every one of us as partners. Then we need to also have joint interdiction operations so that whoever is then caught in the crossfires of that insecurity is brought to book. For example, uh, when we had piracy, not until Kenya signed the first transfer agreement for pirates did we start making sense because it didn't make sense to arrest the suspected pirates and then release them because you can't put them on the ship the naval ship that has arrested. So when one country in the region, and that is Kenya, agreed to take on the pirates, take them through the trial, the legal finish, as it were, trial in, in the courts, then, of course, upon conviction, incarceration in the prisons, then you begin to see the impact. So we must also have our frameworks for that legal finish. We also must collaborate in the development and utilization of advanced technologies because we are living in an age where the technological advancements are so good that if we leverage on them, then we are able to, for example, from land, get a complete picture of what is happening at sea. So it's good to collaborate so that we can have surveillance from land, but also backed by readiness for operations to get wherever the offense is happening we must have the equipment to get us there, the naval ships, and also any other technological solutions that can improve situational awareness and enable very effective and timely response to maritime threats. The other thing is to have available naval assets because unless you do that, unless you have the, the capability to get on the water, then that becomes a problem. And the th one thing that you need to understand is security on land and security at sea or in the waters. The only difference is the, in the color of the environment. On land, it's brown. At sea, it's blue. But we need to have the same structures for security in both places. So if we have those vessels, then do we have the capacity to maintain them, to repair them? Do we have uh, people who understand how they operate? All those are issues. Information sharing. If I have awareness that an offense is happening 
what do I do with it? If I am not there, then I should be able to share with my next neighbor to tell them this and this is happening. So that then we have enhanced ability to anticipate and counter the threats. For example, that's one of the pillars, if I may cite, of our regional, our own regional initiative in the West Indian Ocean to work together, Djibouti Code of Conduct for the repression of piracy, which has now been amended to include other maritime crimes like illegal and reported fishing, trafficking, drugs, people. So one of our pillars is information sharing. And we have our joint operations center where we are able to get situational awareness at sea and of course pass it on to other security arms so that we are able to not leave any gaps. This is in Eastern Africa. Joint patrols and exercises, they are also very, very important. Joint surveillance, they can deter illegal activities and enhance maritime security in especially shared water bodies. Then most important, like I said, uh, the legal finish. So we must have legal and policy harmonization. And when we collaborate and create policies that speak to one another, that has have no gaps, that are able to help us to reach our goals, then it becomes so much easier. So under the Djibouti Code of Conduct, we are working together to harmonize our legal frameworks, our policies, and most important, our procedures, because this is can be very, very effective in dealing and addressing transnational threats. Thank you so much, Ambassador. That is one of the most comprehensive answers I've ever received on this podcast, and I'm sure all of our listeners will be incredibly thankful for all of the gems that you've dropped there. To really pick up on something you said at the beginning of your answer in relation to strategies Mm -hmm. to improve economic conditions, what strategies do you think can be employed to enhance maritime infrastructure and connectivity for improved trade and economic activities? I think the most important in that one is to come up with strategies to tap into uh, private sector funding, PPP, public-private partnerships have proven to be very, very effective because then you're improving the financing of the very capital-intensive operations that are needed in the maritime sector. So mobilizing resources for development, particularly of ports and other maritime infrastructure is very, very important and public funding by government may not be enough. So bringing in the private sector can be quite effective. The other thing is to invest in technology. Digitalization and modern technology can help us enhance efficiency in the port operations and also overall maritime connectivity. Very, very important. But then how do we do this? How do we tap into this unless we have the right policies? So policy frameworks, very, very important. And these are the preserve of governments they have the duty to develop the conducive policy frameworks that can then attract the private investments in maritime infrastructure. Most important is the collaboration in the development and utilization of advanced technologies because this can significantly enhance maritime growth, maritime security, and investment. But most important also is to ensure that we also get rid of non-tariff barriers, that one may not have any direct investment, but having procedures and processes that 
ease the flow of cargo will make it easier for business to thrive and for, of course, more important investments to come in and operations. And it will be an attractive area to to come into uh, from the private sector. And of course, like we say, security underpins the kind of investments that, that we do. Nobody will come and, you know, as it were, throw their money in an area where they are not sure that in two years' time they'll still be able to reap benefits from their investments. So having security measures that are working and the yield results is very, very important because then you're giving confidence to the private sector that, yes, this is an area where they can bring in their money. Thank you once again for that answer, Ambassador Karagisu. I think it was really interesting that one thing that you immediately spoke about and maybe preempted my question was about public and private partnerships. And what do you think about public and private partnerships, the capacity of them to advance maritime security and blue economy goals? I think once you have the right environment, you create the right climate, the businessman is always looking for opportunities where to place his money and where he's sure that he'll get a return on investment. So the first thing we have to do is give the private sector the enabling environment in which to thrive with their money and also get the procedures, the processes easy, facilitation of trade, and that's the preserve of government. The countries that can invest in smart port technologies, including automation, real-time monitoring systems, data analytics, will be better placed to optimize operations and increase efficiency. And that, of course, is what the private sector will want. But when a country may not be able to, to do it alone, then we should be able to form joint regional initiatives in order to promote the maritime trade, such as the free trade agreements that we've seen. Africa, we've just formed one not so long ago, and it's in the process of implementation. Because then you widen the market, and then there is uniform processes, and therefore people, you have predictability of what to expect. So when we create uh, free trade agreements, regional transport corridors, and most important, harmonized customs procedures, because sometimes we have the tendency, because of the money that comes from national budgets from the customs to look only on one side on on how to collect revenue but not realizing that if we have customs procedures that are friendly that are facilitative then we will be widening the pie and bringing in more players which means we can collect more i think widening that pie is an incredibly important point however we do also see challenges and those challenges are posed in the fact of environmental and environmental threats to our region. We, of course, know Africa is a region that is devastated by climate impact. So what do you think are the key challenges in balancing economic development with addressing the environmental challenges posed by the shipping industry? I think we cannot run away from the fact that shipping does contribute to climate change. And therefore, the world has come into the realisation that shipping must play its role to make its own contribution to climate change. Now, let me start by saying that decarbonization of the shipping industry is on course. And this is one of the issues that IMO has taken up very, very seriously. So that even if it's the least emitting sector as compared to roads and other transport modes, 
being a contributor to global greenhouse gas emissions means that the shipping industry must stand up to be counted and make its contribution. Transitioning to greener fuels and technology, as well as infrastructure for fuel supplies, without significantly increasing operational costs, that's a major challenge. And especially because you may not be able to decarbonize only one region. The measures must be implemented across the board, developed, developing countries, small island developing states, the least developing countries. All of us must do it together because climate is cross-cutting and it knows no boundaries. So one of the things then that we must do is come up with technological innovations, uh, retrofitting the current vessels, the older vessels, so that they are able to adopt new technologies for clean energy because that's been decided that it's going to be one of the major pathways to decarbonization. This can be expensive, but also very technically challenging, especially for, like I said, developing countries, and in particular the small island developing states and the least developing countries, where access to such technology is a pipe dream. And how do we ensure, therefore, that even them, they come on board in a just and equitable manner and yet leave nobody behind? So that's one of the major challenges which the industry is dealing with. The underlying issue here is economic disparities. Developing nations uh, rely heavily on shipping for trade and economic development. And strict environmental regulations has the potential to very negatively impact their economic growth if this is not balanced with adequate support mechanism. And that's why we're saying it must be just and equitable so that some of them do not disproportionately bear the burdens. But it's not all doom and gloom. Let me start by saying that uh, while the challenges may be many, there are also equally many opportunities because the shipping industry has the potential to transform in a way that promotes economic growth while also protecting our shared environment. But the key is in global cooperation and commitment. When I say that, I take into account the amount of resources that are available to contribute towards the green fuels that have not been tapped into because the areas where they abound, those resources abound, do not necessarily have the correct technology like where there is abundant solar energy, hydropower, but not the technology to transform it into the kind of green fuels that we need. So it means with commitment and partnerships and collaboration and at a global level, those areas, those regions will be able to play a big part in the production, in the distribution and storage of such green fuels. So it calls for a lot of commitment and also shared technical capacity. Brilliant. Thank you so much once again. And to, to end, of course, this is Africa Aware, hosted by the Africa program at Chatham House. I wouldn't get away with a, without a question. Folks on the African continent, what do you believe? As someone who, of course, is such a senior uh -huh. and uh, experienced individual within this sector, who has been involved with the IMO for a number of years as well, how can the IMO support African countries in leveraging technology and innovation for maritime security, efficiency, and safety? Okay, let me start by saying that IMO is a very technical organization. 
because the, the mandate is to come up with standards for safe, secure shipping on clean oceans, which of course also now involves the impact of climate change and decarbonization. Now, how does IMO do this? Does it by, you know, one of the main products of IMO are conventions, which are generally referred to as instruments. When they are passed within the IMO, there is no discrimination. They have to be applied uniformly across the board by all countries. And it is true to say that there are many developing countries, including the SIDS and LDCs, that find compliance with some IMO conventions, to say the least, daunting to ratify and even domesticate. Yet, like I said, there must never be any weak link in the chain of compliance with relevant international instruments. So harmonizing global compliance is one of the main objectives of IMO as a whole. So what do we expect from IMO or what has IMO done to be able to help developing countries, not just in Africa, but all over? The first thing is capacity building. And IMO provides technical assistance and capacity building programs to developing nations, including those in Africa, which includes training and the necessary resources to enhance compliance with international maritime safety, security, and environmental protection regulations through major program of the IMO, which is the Integrated Technical Cooperation Program, and also some long-term projects. An impactful initiative by IMO in this regard has been the establishment of the Maritime Technology Training Centers, MTCCs, which there are five globally, and one of them addresses capacity building in Africa, and this is hosted in Kenya. The, the role of that MTCC is to help with capacity building efforts of the IMO, like I have said. The other issue, initiative by IMO, is to promote innovation. IMO encourages technological innovation that enhances safety and environmental sustainability. They also work on facilitating access to new technologies, particularly for developing countries. And here I may cite uh, IMO's Innovation Forum and IMO CARES. Those are some of the good examples of the initiatives that IMO has put in place to promote innovation. The other one is funding support, and this is done through various initiatives and partnerships. So what IMO does is, because it's in a position to talk to member states and other partners, they work to secure donor funding for projects like the one I said IMO cares, that promote maritime safety and environmental protection in developing countries that include Africa. One of the recent initiatives in this area is the IMO's FinSmart, which brings all international financial institutions to look into the needs of a sustainable maritime transport sector. Capacity building programs and training workshops is another method that is used, and this is done in collaboration with regional organizations in order to enhance the skills and knowledge of maritime professionals in those regions that need them, and of course, including Africa. Technical cooperation also to developing countries by facilitating access to technical expertise and best practices and 
let me pause here and say that I've been a product and beneficiary by being a recipient of technical cooperation in this regard. My training to become a, or to specialize in international maritime law was actually facilitated by IMO. That's how I was able to go to IMO, International Maritime Law Institute, that's based in Malta. So this has helped in ensuring that uh, developing states have the right capacity in order to implement the standards that have been put by IMO and also for the compliance of such instruments. IMO also develops guidelines and standards to support the safe and efficient use of technology in the maritime sector. By providing internationally recognized standards in this manner, IMO facilitates the adoption of technology and innovation in developing countries, including African states, and thus ensuring compatibility and interoperability with global maritime practices. And here I can cite the example of the facilitation of trade and the single window infrastructure that helps ease procedures for maritime trade. IMO also encourages research and development activities in order to promote innovation in the maritime sector, supporting partnerships and collaborative projects aimed at developing and testing new technologies and solutions that enhance maritime safety, security and efficiency. And to end on this call, let me say that uh, IMO also promotes and facilitates knowledge sharing and dissemination of research findings, including through conferences, workshops, and publications, in order to facilitate the uptake of innovative technology, not just in Africa, but also in other developing countries. So I'm always working a lot with the developing countries, the SEEDs, the LDCs, in order that they may be at par in, in terms of compliance and implementation of the standards that we adopt. And indeed, all those technical cooperation programs have been made for that purpose. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador. It's been truly an honor to have you on the podcast and, and allow you to explain to our listeners and even myself Thank you. the important role of the IMO and your vision for maritime security and, and the maritime world to benefit of course the african continent but also the globe so thank you so much it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure too thank you so much you know that you've allowed me to share something with your audience i appreciate and that brings us to an end of africa where we hope you've enjoyed listening please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening to us on and do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. I've been your host Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye. <laughs>